Welcome to the Zen Stoic Path. I have Sean Cecil here back again. One of my favorite guests to have on. You've been on this show literally more than any for ever, anybody who's ever been on, including the old the prior podcast. Exactly, because <laughs> two of my two of my appearances were uh, on the the old one. That's right. Yeah, and you've you've outdone every other guest in attendance. <laughs> <laughs> so I appreciate you being on again. I appreciate uh, you having me, man. Yeah, you're you're literally the first person to do a podcast in the new studio, which we don't have video of yet, but I'm glad that we're in here. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty cool. Yeah. It, it looks pretty awesome. They're missing out, but they'll get the video soon enough. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> as, as soon as we get all our equipment dialed in, it will be here. So I'm very excited about it. Uh, you and I were talking about the intentions and delusions uh, of Zen Stoicism. And you're one of the people that I really like to bounce ideas off of mm-hmm. because I know that you won't sugarcoat anything and you won't give a compliment just to give a compliment like it'll be sincere or it won't be there at all that's correct (laughs) so i really do appreciate that when you send me the intentions and delusions and i sent that back to you i was like yeah dude i normally don't like look at other people's frameworks oh man this is really solid but with yours i was like yep this one works (laughs) yes (laughs) amazing just for if anybody hasn't listened to your previous episodes could you just give a quick background about what you do and who you are and yeah, something like that. I, I have a coaching business called the Oculus Institute. My main program is about helping people find their ikigai, if you're familiar with the Japanese concept of ikigai. I am. What you can get paid for, what you enjoy, what the world needs, and what you're good at. Though That last one, you can become good at it. You yes. Know, you don't want to start off with that one. But I help people find that. I use psychometrics. So, like, for example, disc and motivators I'm extremely proficient in. I have a deep understanding of the neurochemistry involved with those. And and then also a lot of esoteric work. So I have people go through pretty extensive deconditioning and yes. then use that to get an authentic totem pole of values. And I help people find their purpose from that. Um, I did recently launch a personal finance program. I, I just shot an email to former clients. So it's not something that's being marketed. That mm-hmm. said, if anybody wants to learn about budgeting, money mindset, investing, trading, etc., feel free to get in touch with me and I'm happy to discuss it with you. That's right. Um, yeah. And uh, for the audience who has not heard the previous episode that you did on this podcast, Zen Stoic Path, you talked about how you use Zen and Stoic principles to get such great returns trading that you're able to retire. Yeah, yeah, I could retire today. This year I was over up over 600%. Amazing. (laughs) Mind-blowing numbers. (laughs) Those numbers are absurd. And like last year it was over 200%, so it's not like a one-off kind of thing. This has been a consistent progression. Yeah, it's been a consistent progression. And, And honestly, like where I make the most money is because when people panic... Mm-hmm. I, I have, I'm smart enough to catch the bottom and I don't get caught up in the fear yes. so that allows me to invest when everybody else is scared. Mm-hmm. And that's honestly how I make more money than anything. That's fantastic. <laughs> I, I bring this up as well because you're talking about how you launched this, this the course. personal finance course. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I think so just if there's any credibility that. to that, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, there's credibility. I'm, <laughs> Absolutely. I'm 32 and I could retire. So I clearly doing something right in the money or money space. And then I'm also, I don't know if you know this, but I'm creating a software company for coaches I did not know that, but course delivery and client management systems like coach accountable and all that are not particularly good either for the coach intuitively making stuff or for the clients going through it. I've got a dev. So my CTO, uh, my developer is building out the system and uh, I've already designed it and hopefully we're going to have that launch uh, this year. So that's awesome. I I really hope you'll be showing me that soon because I I could always go for a juicy system for coaching. (laughs) Yeah. It's going to take uh, several months. It's probably not going to get done until May or June, Mm -hmm. but once I have it, obviously I'm going to show it to you. Oh man, I'm excited. (laughs) I I always like tools that help me make that process of coaching clients better and more fulfilling for them as well as for myself. The proper tooling sometimes just gives us the ability to do work at a much higher level. It's just a matter of efficiency, like making the most out of your time so that you can focus on the the concepts and the intellectual component of what makes you a master mm-hmm. and also making it easy for the clients so that they you have good compliance and they're actually going through stuff instead of getting frustrated with technology. That doesn't serve anybody. No, it doesn't. It just, it just creates friction in the process. And yeah. I believe that when we remove friction from ourselves and from our environment, it allows us to move intuitively in the direction of our highest contribution. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, especially for clients, they're already facing the friction of having to deal with their inner challenges. That's why they're here. So you don't want to add on more friction, especially if someone's not, you know, particularly like tech friendly. 
Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I can think of my uncle who once asked me, Sean, when you double click, how long do you wait in between the clicks? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, we have some work to do. Uh, some people, it's their tech is not their thing. And, and so that shouldn't be a challenge in stopping people from growing and developing and learning from, from, from people like us. So absolutely, that's the purpose of why I'm making this. Oh, I'm excited to see it. I'm also excited to see the personal finance course because I didn't realize you were ever making that. One of my clients, her husband came to me just a couple of weeks ago. I was like, hey, I heard you were thinking of doing this. Can I pay you the full price and do that right now? I'm like, sure. And then, you know, it just means I'm going to have to record the trainings and us stuff, which I'm going to do live with them. But I figured mm-hmm. I'd just shoot it out to my former clients and be like, hey, is anyone interested? And then a bunch of them were like, yeah. Oh, that's a awesome. Pretty <laughs> nice little December payday. Merry yes. Christmas to me. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas to us all. <laughs> Personal yeah. finance being on point. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is it's going to save them or help them earn way more money than the thing. The ROI on this particular course, because the ROI on the Ikigai course is really high. Monetarily, I've had clients who have increased their income by five to six figures, but a lot of it comes in fulfillment, which is hard to quantify. Yes. Whereas like the personal the emotional finance stuff. course, <laughs> the, the, just the pure financial ROI that people can easily quantify is going to be through the roof. That's fantastic, man. I'm excited to to check it out myself. Is that something that you're able to to share to people outside of your coaching network? Uh, you mean the actual just like content? listeners of of this podcast if they're interested in something like that? So to go through the actual course would require actually signing up as a client. I don't. Uh, I I could give people like an overview of it if people are interested. If somebody's listening and they're interested, I could shoot them like that the course outline or something. Yeah, like that. that would be cool. I'm sure. I'm sure you'll get some some people. I've got a document that's got a course outline. I'm gonna actually potentially add a couple more trainings after talking to a mutual friend of ours. Chris. Beautiful. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. He was pointing some stuff out. I'm like, oh yeah, I do need dad trainings on that. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll be having him on the, uh, the podcast soon. He is the, the wealth architect. He was yeah. on my former podcast, like way in the beginning. So uh, I'll definitely get him on here cause he's very Zen stoic about money and yeah. has a way of explaining it. That's actually really fascinating. So yeah, I know he's really good too. Yeah, absolutely. If anybody's looking for financial stuff, I would also recommend him. Yeah, most definitely wealth architect with the score program, which yeah. is, uh, we're doing a, a plug for him. He's not even here. He doesn't even know it. <laughs> <Doesn't> even know. <laughs> <laughs> I like it, man. All right. You and I were talking about the intentions and delusions. And what's really interesting is that I've had these conversations with my clients and it's from like coach client relationship type of dynamic, but I've never, you're the only coach that I've actually had a discussion with this, like at length, like we we're like bringing up different examples, yeah, yeah, like yeah. different people who symbolize these things in our lives, which I thought was fascinating. So the intentions and delusions for those who haven't heard it, I'll go through them real quick. So the intentions and delusions, they're a pair bonding of different reasons why you might say or do anything in life. And the one thing that we can't hide from ourselves are our intentions. At some level, we'll feel them. We may not know cognitively what the intention is, but we will feel it through our emotions. And the different intentions are embrace versus resistance. So embrace is the intention that points you back to your humanity. Resistance points you away from it and into delusion. Then we have understanding versus control. And this is related to the way that you communicate with others, as well as the way you communicate with your circumstances in life. Following that, we have discipline versus expediency, which discipline is to prioritize meaning over gratification. So in other words, doing things that are meaningful over things that just feel good. And this is relative to one's relationship to their own emotions. And an example of expediency, for instance, is I don't feel very good. So I want to do something to make myself feel better. So, so I'm going to go drink some booze. Yeah, I'm going to go drink some booze. <laughs> I'm going to go, I'm going to go have a McDonald's or I'm going to watch 35 episodes on Netflix. Like I'm going to do something to bridge that feeling. And that's, that is what expediency is. It's not just trying to rush things, but it's, I'm trying to move away from this bad feeling into the good feeling without any regard for understanding what brought about the bad feeling, so to speak. And then the final pair is sincerity versus performance. And this has to do with the way that you express yourself to the world. Sincerity is to express yourself with a prioritization of your own self-image and you caring about how you view yourself more than you care about how others view you, whereas performance is the inverse, where you're more invested in how others are perceiving you than you are in your own perception of yourself. So in that particular dichotomy, somebody would forego their sense of self-respect in order to just project a certain image to another person or to the public. That happens way too much. 
Oh, I am. Oh, I'm very familiar with this. That that was a lot of my life for the first thirty years. No, I, thankfully I, I, I got to this point. You to grow out of that. I, I Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, you met me before any yeah. of this was <laughs> was conscious. So come a long way. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so you had the experience of listening to the episodes around the intentions and delusions, and I'm very, I'm just curious uh, for you to share your thoughts. Uh, about them and where you've seen them function up until this point that you've known them to be. Yeah. So one thing I want to point out is that you've tapped into a very powerful and very ancient uh, set of archetypes. So if you look at old alchemy, right, they talk about fire, air, earth, and water, which map to uh, particular psychometrics. So like Mm -hmm. the disc system, which I use extensively, Fire maps to D, I maps to air, S maps to water, C maps to earth. And then I've linked those to different neurotransmitters, right? You, and then that's why the ancients were able to observe these dynamics in people. And they, they labeled them with elements, which mm-hmm. is fine. But they were observing very real phenomena. And those phenomena have underlying neurochemical bases. Yes. Right? So D, drive, dominance, decisiveness, is linked to the catecholamines. So that's dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine. I, which is intuition, interconnection, influence, is linked to serotonin. Yes. Uh, S, which is structure, steadiness, stability, strategy, sustainability systems, is linked to oxytocin and vasopressin. And then C, which is caution, compliance, and conscientiousness, is linked to the endorphin system and the endocannabinoid system. And so if you look at those pairs of intentions and delusions, mm-hmm. each one will align with one of these fundamental psychological neurochemical bases. So expediency and discipline map to the high D. So the high D who is operating from an unconscious place is going to be going to expediency because it's well known that, you know, high D's have a tendency to take shortcuts. Yeah, to right? rush things. To rush things. <laughs> if you <laughs> Yeah, no, and to try and go around the system because mm-hmm. they want the outcome. They all like that's a known thing for high D's, which again is linked to the dopamine. There's neurochemical basis for that. But the other thing that's known about high D's is that they have phenomenal drive to push themselves. And mm-hmm. if you, if they can stay on the path and not take a shortcut. They have the discipline to do phenomenal things. That's right. right? Like, for example, we both know a very uh, special man named Mark Von Muser, and he has That's you know, right. some of the most drive of anyone you'll ever meet. Yes. <laughs> right? Nuclear like, D. Yeah, nuclear <laughs> D, energizer, bunny, whatever it takes, but he won't, he'll do it right. Yes. You know, because he's conscious. There's um, a discipline to it rather than an expediency. That is exactly. a fully developed side of that personality. Correct, correct. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at, High eyes, if you look at the serotonin system, serotonin is about social pride. A high eye who is operating from a more unconscious place is very prone to performance because they want to be liked. That's right. But a conscious eye realizes that the way to build the deepest rapport and the truest connection is through sincerity. And then if you look at, at the, the S, if you look at the oxytocin vasopressin system, S's are also really process-driven. So S's like change, but at a slow pace, mm-hmm. right? They want it to be gradual. And so they want to do things in a particular way so that it's sustainable. Correct. So in their personal interactions, they form very deep bonds with a small group. And in the way that they conduct themselves with business and career and all these other things, they're very process focused. And so the understanding control dynamic plays out in both of those. It can play out in personal situations (laughs) where an unconscious S is trying to control the people around them, passive aggressive means or manipulation or whatever. Whereas a conscious S realizes that the way to have the deepest connection is to actually understand and empathize with the other person and figure it out. And then the same thing in in process, right? So uh, an unconscious S on the task side Mm -hmm. will try to get everybody to do things their way. Correct. Whereas a conscious S will understand the situation and develop a process that works not just for them, but for everybody. And then finally, if you go and you look at the C, the C is caution, compliance, conscientiousness. Normally high C's have a great deal of resistance because it triggers a lot of that fear stuff going on. Fear being the, the dominant energy of high C. But if they can overcome that, and an unconscious C is going to be in a lot of pain with that resistance. Yes. Consistently. Mm-hmm. And then, but once they become conscious and they learn to overcome that and that the way to actually be at peace is to accept. Yes. <laughs> then they move into accept embrace. and trust. Yes. And that's the thing where, I, I, because of the actually because of the endorphin system, endorphins like numb the body when there's a thing of pain. So if you go and you exercise a lot, the endorphins are released to prevent you from feeling like crap, so you can keep going. And so the the neurochemistry there is actually set up for 
high C's to, to do well in embrace mm-hmm. as long as they can get out of the analysis paralysis and accept the actual situation. Yes. And I, I find this fascinating because I, I worked with disc a lot, especially while I was coaching over at Tony Robbins. That was the assessment that we used. And I found it so useful to be able to use that with a client because it would help you get an insight into their preferred style of being learning and even having a conversation. So sometimes you would be talking to somebody and they sounded like they were super gregarious and upbeat and all all that. And then you look at their disc and it turns out they're a high S high C and they just, they have a little bit of like friendliness to them, but in terms of putting together a plan for their coaching and hitting their goals and their outcomes, it has, it it can't be in this like fun bubbly kind of way. It needs to be like nice and regimented, you know, exact. And then they would follow through with it. So that has saved me so many times just knowing the disc of somebody and being able to use that as guidance. Yeah. And, and I think that to some extent that knowledge being around in your subconscious probably played a role in how you architected the intentions and delusions to align Yes, all this stuff, because that fundamental understanding of the different types of psychology, I think probably probably influenced you. Yeah, I I would say that it did because I used it over thousands of sessions. So I'm sure it's conditioned (laughs) into my mind in a very deep way. I just realized something and we're, we're about to Tarantino this. We didn't really explain exactly what the disc is. So how would you describe what the disc assessment is to somebody who's unfamiliar with it? It's, it's a psychometric that taps into different kinds of behavioral modalities. And as I said, well, I, I defined each of them very quickly as I was going through, but D is dominance, drive, decisiveness. Mm-hmm. The questions they tend to ask are, what do we need not done and when do we need it done by? Yes. Very outcome focused. Their strength is that they've got massive drive. Their weakness is that they can have a bit of a temper and that they can take shortcuts. Mm-hmm. High I is interconnection, influence, and intuition. So high eyes, the questions they tend to ask are who. They're very people-oriented. Mm-hmm. Their strength is that they're great at making connections. The weakness is that sometimes they care too much what people think of them. Yes. Um, high S. So S is structure, stability, sustainability, strategy, systems, uh, steadiness, all that stuff. High S is they like to do change, but gradually. Mm-hmm. And they're very, the questions they tend to ask are how. They're very concerned about process. So they yes. do it right, and then it doesn't fall apart later. And, and they also tend to, because in their personal lives, they don't want to have too much disruption. They tend to not have huge social circles. They have small social circles that they'll invest a lot in. Mm-hmm. And then C is caution, compliance, conscientiousness. And the questions they tend to ask are why and what if, because they're always trying to cover their ass. Because mm-hmm. the animating energy there is, is fear. And so... Uh, their risk is analysis paralysis, but their superpowers, they're very detail-oriented. If you have somebody doing your taxes, you want a high C. Yeah. <laughs> you want somebody who's going to go through all those details yeah. and not if, miss a thing. If you have someone who's like a software developer, you want a high C. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. One other thing that I've made a recent development and discovery on is with the intentions and delusions, there is both a passive and an active side of doing these things. Or On, on both the intention and the delusion on side? On both, yeah. Okay. So I found this to be interesting. And the way that I, I came to it is I was, I did an episode on this podcast called Zen Stoic Morality where I went through the five precepts and like a little bit of a updated translation. Yeah, I listened to it. Yeah. I listened to all your episodes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's right. <laughs> You're up to date on all of it. So if I reference something, you'll know, which is fantastic. <laughs> Especially having you as a guest. <laughs> You're intimately familiar with everything I'm saying. Intimately familiar with the podcast. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so when I was studying the precepts, I, I found it really interesting because the more I went down the rabbit hole of what they were, the precepts of Buddhism, there are five precepts, and these are basically not necessarily like precepts from what I understand, is not actually a good word to describe what they are. They're more like vows, like things you commit to in terms of your moral conduct so that you don't create emotional or mental friction within yourself on your path to enlightenment. And they are things that are very simple. Like the first one is not to take life or not to kill. Second one being not to steal or not to take what's not given. Third one, not to exploit the passions, which Interestingly enough, the development of the word expediency for the delusions came from the exploitation of passions, which is if, like the example you gave, I feel sad, so I'm going to have a drink or I'm going to go watch God knows I've seen that. When I was younger and burned out and depressed, that's what I did. Yeah, went right for something. Yeah, Yeah. and and then I found my way and I found my purpose and I didn't need that anymore. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Because you didn't need that bridge anymore. And so that, that would be the third precept, right? Not to exploit the passions and... Passions are not a bad thing in life, but if we exploit them and we we use them for purposes that 
are again not going, ideal not ideal or, right or they're pointing away from ourselves into yeah. delusion could be a rough time the fourth one is to not use false speech so in other words communicate sincerely <laughs> and yep. then the yeah and then the fifth one is not to there are many translations of this that i found the one in which that comes up a lot is not to be in a state of intoxication but what I found it to be, the spirit of that particular precept is not to pass through life in a haze or in a way that you are not present or trying to escape what is. Yep. Awareness. So to have that awareness. And, and in going through that, as I studied it, I realized the precepts themselves have passive and active components to them. Like, for example, don't kill or don't destroy life is, the, is technically the passive side of that. It's don't do these things, but what do you do instead in order to uh, conduct yourself in alignment with that precept? And it would be to act with love, kindness, and compassion to bring that into all the actions and the things that you say. Whereas when you think about not exploiting the passions, for instance, the third precept, you could think about if I'm not going to exploit the passions, then maybe I honor the passions. Maybe I do them with a sense of meaning, with a sense of purpose and, and an aim of going into a direction that is not simply for my pleasure, not simply to escape. My mentors who you met last night, they're very passionate about, you know, their love for each other, but it's in a way that connects them to each yes. other and to their humanity. They are fantastic people, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are very inspiring humans. And it's, that's completely right. Like they're very passionate people, but it's not Maybe in I this. I can get Micro to come on your podcast. I point. would love Micro to come on my podcast. <laughs> that would be amazing. She is a very, extraordinary woman and you can see that that passion is pointed in a direction that's not escaping something it's not right. a moving away from type of passion but right. it's a moving towards exactly uh, which is beautiful bringing in the nlp there yes yeah. so moving towards super moving useful. away is super useful when understanding this type of stuff i actually use it a lot in the liberation session to see like where somebody's belief is coming from or their value set is it a moving away from or moving towards and the interesting thing about that is that when somebody's a moving away from they naturally bring more of that into their life because they're so focused on the thing that they don't want <laughs> so they move towards it and they, well, they, they, they hold they, it in that's, mind that's the law of repulsion yeah i think i've talked about that on this podcast before. you have we'll definitely revisit that today yeah. because uh, actually let's just go into it now real quick i'll just define it quickly so yeah. the, the law of repulsion people talk about the law of attraction which is absolutely a thing but it's not the only metaphysical law at play the law of repulsion states that that to which you are emotionally attached shall be repelled from you mm. and the law of repulsion has a just if it course it corresponds in physics like the law of attraction corresponds to the law of gravity yes and the law of repulsion corresponds to the law of electromagnetism Right, because in the first one, like attracts like, mass attracts mass. And in the second one, like repels. Mm. So po positive charges uh, repel each other and negative charges repel each other. And Coulomb's constant, which is the physical constant for the mm. law of electromagnetism, is a uh, significantly higher value than the gravitational constant, Newton's constant. Yes. Um, and, and this is the same with the law of repulsion versus the law of attraction. If you're doing all the law of attraction stuff, but you're triggering the law of repulsion, the law of repulsion wins out. Wow. Just taking that in for a second. Because <laughs> I, I can definitely recall many instances in my life where I've triggered that law of repulsion. Oh, yeah. As thinking a, that I was triggering the law of attraction. Yep, yep, in my, exactly. In the that's, early and days. That's, and that's, that's the problem with people who push only the law of attraction. They don't understand the law of repulsion. And so they try to, they, they think that it's just a very simple one way get obsessed about something but it's not it's, yeah it's let me just cover my room in pictures of things yeah, that i want yeah, and exactly. then they'll come to me <laughs> yeah the key is desire without attachment and if you have desire without attachment you'll find yourself naturally taking the actions to make that thing come into being desire without attachment <clears throat> how would one cultivate desire without attachment so desire is generally easy enough to cultivate right it spontaneously arises unless you've really disconnected from yourself yes the thing with attachment is that you have to you have to do the esoteric work you have to do the deconditioning work you have to see the dynamics and from the perspective of the soul or the awareness mm -hmm. observe what's going on in the mind in the, in the thoughts and the emotions and where that attachment is coming from find the beliefs that are false find the emotions that aren't serving you, dissolve the stresses, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Go into things like you embrace, right? Like yes. being able to accept things, being able to choose to go towards what's meaningful. All of those things, as you build those, that way of being, you'll find attachments fall by the wayside. Yeah, that is really interesting because I noticed 
Yeah, it's something that we were actually discussing last night when we were hanging out with with Dan and Micro, which were you know it was a fantastic evening, and they were asking me what I did. Mm-hmm. I was explaining the liberation session and how there's a, a processing of old emotion that has been stuck in your psyche or in your being. And one of the things that I always go back to is that if any emotional charge continues to exist, there is something that has not been uncovered yet, something that hasn't been embraced, so to speak. And once yeah, you it may embrace, be something that's uncovered but not accepted. Correct. Yeah, it could be aware, but I don't yeah. know why it's here. It's not fulfilling the C of why, yeah, the yeah. C question of why is this. But if people may know and they'd be like, hey, listen, I know what's there, but I don't want to feel like it because it's too painful, so I'm just not. Mm-hmm. It's, that doesn't work that way. Part of being human is you have to feel your feelings in their entirety before you release them. Yes. So if you refuse to feel them, then they're going to stick around. <laughs> yes. That's really interesting. One of my, my mentors in coaching, and I'm sure you've listened to the episode with him, Dr. Mario Garcia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's a cool guy. Yeah. yeah. I like that episode. Yeah. He's, he's super cool. One he of the things. He's very clever. Yeah. He's, dude, the guy is super accomplished and just a wizard when it comes to coaching. He taught me something really interesting when I went through the NLP master certification and timeline therapy, master's timeline therapy certification. And one of the things that he said that always stuck with me is like one of the biggest common problems that we all share is chronic dissociation from our emotions. Yep. Absolutely agreed. That is a massive issue. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it, how has it shown up in, in your experience so uh, one thing I've noticed is that I had, so when I work with clients who are in toxic job environments, they come to me to find their icky guy because they're currently so far from it or they're burned out. Mm-hmm. And I found that one of the reasons why people do that is that if the reason they tolerate toxic job environments is because they had toxic home environments mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Yes. And so when you have that growing up, you get, you have something that's called developmental trauma disorder. Mm-hmm. Not, not everybody who has those situations has it, but it's a cluster of symptoms. Yes. And, and it's something that you can overcome, right? People who say, oh, this is just the way I am and so I'm going to be this for life. I, I completely disagree with that. I've had clients who have had, I'm, I don't know who's listening, but 99% chance I've had a client who's been through way worse than whoever may be listening. I'm not sure, but 99% of you are relatively confident. Mm-hmm. And she got through it and she overcame and she became a totally different person. But a big part of that journey was feeling the emotions that she'd repressed because it's, especially as a child, also for an adult who goes through like a PTSD experience, mm-hmm. people will repress their emotions because they're too painful. And then when they're disconnected from their emotions, they're also disconnected from their passions and their values. That's right. And so you can't split your psyche like that and expect to then have the full flow of energy and authenticity. Yeah, that's a very good point. In essence, in order to try to preserve your sanity in some of those traumatic situations, people learn to disconnect from the emotions, but end up throwing out the baby with the bathwater because that also throws out the creativity and the purpose and everything that makes them. Yeah. And the other thing that I've seen is that when people come to me and they're like, oh, I don't trust myself. This is something I get a lot is people like, oh, I don't trust myself to pick the right job. Oh, I don't trust myself to know my values. And they're, they're very based on external validation, which doesn't help get you to any kind of authentic values at all. Correct. One of the reasons why they don't trust themselves is because very often they're not honest with themselves about the extent of their feelings. And so what happens mm. is that part of you now does not is not feel at one with the rest of you. So now your cognitive and emotional layers are are in disagreement with each other. Yes. And they don't trust each other. And that's what it really means when people say they don't trust themselves. That's super fascinating. I had a large period of my life where I did not trust myself. And I'm curious to what your process is to help somebody trust themselves. What I typically go with, especially with the development of the intentions and delusions, is that trusting yourself is not necessarily a mental activity where you're just like, I'm going to trust myself today. (laughs) It doesn't quite go down that way. What I've noticed it to be is with the consistent and progressive expression of sincerity, whether through words or actions, the more you express sincerely, the more you begin to trust yourself. Yeah, yeah. external integrity definitely mirrors internal integrity. But I would also say that I would extrapolate that to sincerity within oneself and one's feelings. Correct, yeah. It would be a sincerity with that. And and at least for myself and the development of trust in myself from a period of time where I didn't trust myself and I would always default to other people and whatnot, it was through the external expression of sincerity that 
made me internally reflect back and go, okay, like this is okay. Like I don't have to just keep these things inside. I can say them, I can do them. And the world didn't fall apart and people actually connected with me more because I was more sincere. Yeah. And I realized the power of the integrated high eye personality. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing is fundamentally it comes down to if you have all these splinters of consciousness and you have this fragmented psyche, you have to put it back together. You have to, and the thing is that's the default state, right? Mm -hmm. for, for humans is to go into this conditioned multi-schizophrenic kind of state. People don't realize it, but most people have all these different splinters of consciousness, hundreds of them running around doing different things. They One day they want one thing and then you know, they, one day they want to lose weight and the next day they're munching on ice cream. And it's like to unify all of that requires a lot of observation internally. Yes. Right? Like when I have my clients do the deconditioning work, I have them from the perspective of the observer, of the awareness of the soul to observe all of that and to consciously bring it all together to feel blocked emotional charges and release them to mm -hmm. understand the different beliefs and splinters of consciousness and say, okay, listen, this one's serving me. This one isn't, this one can be repurposed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and going through uh, that kind of work is critical. Absolutely. It's what's interesting is <clears throat> I feel like that kind of work really aims at it. And then there's sometimes in life where we have experiences where we didn't intend for them to do what they did for us, but they sometimes will release some of those things or sometimes unify some of those parts that That's have true. Splintered. Especially like I went through one recently, which, you know, you and I talked about, mm -hmm. like I had a pattern over the past of when I felt betrayed, like I had trouble embracing that. Yes. And there was a case where it happened just a little over a month ago and I was able to accept it and, and not go into that old pattern. And then all the emotional charge from all the past betrayals just washed out. Yeah. Just out of nowhere. <laughs> it's like, oh. It was really, really cool. Yeah. When you get the lesson, the charge goes away yeah. <laughs> and you get the one that you need. It's, uh, it's interesting because sometimes when I'm talking to people about doing the liberation session, I am very careful about making sure that I'm not attempting to claim to them that this is the only way. I'm like, it's very possible that you let this go in your lifetime at some point, maybe five years, 10 years. The question is, do you want to do it now or do you want to just leave it up to life to, to do it for you? And that, that's really the decision that somebody makes. So I don't want to continue living like this. Okay, this is a method that will help you get there. There are a lot of different tools. They all basically end in the same place of awareness and of unity and, and the, the truest form of humanity, right? All the virtues mm. we talked about, gratitude, truth, mm. love, conviction, faith, like all this kind of stuff. Yes. Th there are a lot of tools to get there, but that's where it ends. That's where the road always ends. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> we're, all, we're always aiming, aiming now, at the same thing. People can choose not to go down any of the paths. Like they have free will. That's their choice. And then that just is going to have fairly predictable consequences and their external and internal state. But and even that, they'll eventually come around. So sometimes the, the path of delusion, while excessively and unnecessarily unpleasant, can still get you to there's there's a realization there's a constant <laughs> feedback mechanism for sure. right that's right there's a constant feedback mechanism which is why the whole universe is constructed this way yes <laughs> yeah sometimes your values failing on you is the most painful and simultaneously the most wonderful experience you could possibly have yeah sets you free in, in some sense i will say that my darkest period when i was the most burned out and on the brink of suicide mm -hmm. was what forged me into the man that i am today yeah so i am grateful for that experience as difficult as it was at the time absolutely you and i we talked about this last night when i was sharing the story of how my mom passed away and what's interesting is i know this next thing that you had reminded me of but i didn't include it in the story and i was talking about how difficult it was and you're like yeah and at the same time this is what led you to your purpose of what you're doing today and, it, and it's very true like that was one of the darkest times of my life and it led me to doing this work. Yep. And without it, this would none of this would have been possible. Yep. And in, in not just about you, but all the people that you've helped and will help. Yeah. Like like me, we both got a lot of time ahead of us to help a That's lot right. more people. In <laughs> early thirties, there's there's it's <laughs> a lot of life to live here. Oh, yeah. Which is beautiful. Especially with some of this age reversal stuff that's coming down the pike in the next thirty or forty years. Oh, I am stoked about that. Going I'm going to the center next week to do some blood work. Good deal. Begin my age oh, reversal. Yeah. Good deal. I, I did an assessment and it said that my biological age was 31. And I was like, how dare you? 
<laughs> I was like, that is a year older than I am now. So I will attend to it. We'll get that fixed. Absolutely. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm excited for that. So anyway, I know we were talking about, we went off on a different tangent, but we'll bring it back. As I always like to put a pin in these things, but the active and passive expressions yes. of each intention. So I, I realized this because I noticed that even in myself, I, w- I was doing things that I was able to classify as a specific delusion, but it was not in the way that I thought the delusion would normally come up. The one I'm referring to is expediency. Mm-hmm. And I realized that the active form of expediency looks like what we classify as the stereotypical high D personality, like rushing things, cutting corners, go, let me just get this thing done or make myself feel good when I feel bad. So I realize that's the active side. There's an action being taken, Mm -hmm. but there's also a side of it that gets expressed through inaction. And for me, the way that I noticed myself expressing expediency was using, for instance, laziness to avoid the bad feeling. And I caught myself in it. I'm like, I'm not taking an action right now, but I'm using this as a bridge to like bad feeling. Not being disciplined. Correct. (laughs) So not being disciplined is almost like the passive side of expediency. Yeah. And for instance, not doing activities that are bad for you, so to speak, like eating junk food or like sitting around watching TV is the passive side of discipline. Like I don't engage in, in the exploiting of the passions, for instance, whereas the active side of discipline is taking the action on the thing that is meaningful that you deem as important for whatever it is that you're aiming at. That makes sense. Can, can I take a stab at the sincerity? Point Absolutely. The yeah. I was, uh, th- that's why I brought it up. So if we're looking at performance, right, the active side would be putting on a false front that you're intentionally projecting. Mm-hmm. The passive side would be going along with people's assessment of you that is not accurate or letting it feed into your own ego without intentionally trying to cultivate it, but just accepting it as other people do it. And then sincerity, the passive side of it would be not trying to perform Whereas mm-hmm. the active side of it would be authentically going in, figuring out your values and intentionally projecting that. Correct. Yeah, it would be like uh, the fourth precept, not engaging in false speech would be yeah. the passive side. Yeah. And I think it's important to understand these because sometimes with the word of what it is, it can sound like, oh, expediency. Well, I'm just sitting here. I'm not being expedient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, like, you know, or I'm not performing. I'm just like, they think that of me and they think I'm all great and they're giving me all these cool compliments. I, and I know that's not true, but fuck it. They're <laughs> <laughs> they think that, so yeah. I'll let it go. Yeah, and, and it's easy for people to do that. If somebody comes up and starts flatting or whatever, it's easy for someone who's in a, in a goic mindset to be like, oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, and I see it like with understanding as well is for me, the passive side of understanding is not imposing your beliefs or your will upon other people. Yep. The other way that I also started to see it in, and this is something that I I took away from Marcus Aurelius, where he talks about you're not obligated to have an opinion. Talks about this in meditations, and I see that as a form of passive understanding. I don't understand, I don't know this thing. And I don't feel obligated to create a belief or an opinion or a conviction over this, so I won't. And that would be the passive side of understanding, whereas the active side is like, I'm seeking, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Gonna study, I'm going to figure it out. Right, I'm going to learn something. And then with control, what do you think the passive side of control might look like? I think the active side of control is very obvious, but the passive side of control would be more like when you have a situation where people are looking somebody to tell them what to do and they're giving up their sovereignty and they're giving up their agency and you're like oh yeah sure you're not that's fascinating (laughs) so so the passive side of control is almost like allowing yourself to be controlled by others in a way way you're allowing them to control you to be the boss or the authority and take the responsibility for stuff and it comes back to there's a concept we talk a lot about in in zoarte which you're going to be Oh, I'm, I'm stoked with. about this. Vic, Vic, Victor just got accepted into the same mastermind as me. So it's yeah, sweet. It's, it's um, fantastic. We talk about sovereignty, right? Everybody mm-hmm. has their own agency and their own decisions. So the active side of control is trying to violate somebody else's sovereignty. Yes. To get to subordinate it. Whereas the passive side is accepting it when they give up their sovereignty to you. And that's something that as coaches, we have to be really aware of because of the whole guru dynamic. Yes. And you've been been in this position, I've been in this position, and we have to give people wake-up calls 
where they basically, somebody called me up and was like asking me about whether or not they should buy some house or whatever. And I'm like, ultimately, like that comes down to your values. And exactly. like, I can't tell you what to do. I, and it was very clear that she wasn't asking for just my opinion on where the property market would go because I, I gave her that just like mm-hmm. my assessment, not just as a, a bystander. But she wanted, she was very clear she wanted me to validate her decision. Right? Yes. And I'm like, listen, that's not my place. Correct. It's your decision and you need to make it. Yeah. <laughs> and it, I would say, yeah, that, that's a great example of a passive expression of control. Yeah. If I'm going to scapegoat my decision to you. And that way, if it goes south, I can blame you, <laughs> not, not myself. Yeah, and, and, and both, both parties on that exchange are engaged in the passive thing of control. Yes. In a way. That's so interesting. Right. It, and it's this weird codependency dynamic. Oh, shit. Okay. Would you say that, so that would be a codependency dynamic, but a codependent relationship would you say that's a form of passive control? Yeah, because you have dominant control. You have dominant control and submissive control. So the dominant party in the relationship mm-hmm. is saying, hey, listen, you're going to do this. You're going to do that. And they're dependent upon somebody else submitting to them for their own ego or whatever. And then the submissive person uses passive aggressive tactics and guilt trips and all this other shit, you know, manipulate the other one. And so they're both engaged in this form of passive control. Uh, that, that particular dynamic is really interesting. I've been in it before. Many years ago, probably, like, I think eight years ago was probably the last time I was like deeply in a dynamic like that, a codependent relationship. And it, it's interesting because it's so hypnotic and seems almost impossible to stop once you're in it. When so, If somebody catches themselves in it, what would you advise them to do or to think about to begin to pull themselves out of that kind of hypnotic rhythm that passive control can create i think that the first thing to do is to identify with the other person hey this is the dynamic i'm seeing Mm -hmm. it's not healthy yes and i want i want to stop this and then the other person in many cases will straight outright resist that yes and if that's the case you probably need to exit the relationship if they do agree then both of you need to start being pretty observant about where it's happening yes and point and help each other by pointing it out and going down, examining where it's coming from, what are the roots, what are the beliefs, what are the emotions behind each incident, mm-hmm. and start pulling out the foundational elements that led to it in the first place. Yes. And so that requires two people who are conscious, which is not the majority of people. Correct. Also requires the person who's in the dominant end of that dynamic to relinquish the control. Well, in the submissive one. Because that means the submissive one needs to step into their sovereignty and their agency and take responsibility for their decisions. Yes. And that can be just as hard as a narcissist giving up control. That is very interesting. It reminds me of in book two of Meditations, Marcus Aurelius said to be overpowered by pleasure or pain. That's the third way that the soul degrades itself. And it's if you have the control, in some ways I see that as being overpowered by the pleasure of being in control, quote unquote, I'm making and, and air quotes come, my fingers here. It can come here. two ways. There's some yes. people who intentionally enter into the relationship seeking to control it. Mm-hmm. And there's some people who passively find themselves in that position because the other person is giving up their sovereignty and they didn't even, like I've, I've had a client where she was doing that and her husband's great guy, but he, he got used to this dynamic and he built expectations because she was presenting a false image of herself. Mm. And you know, then they had to have a come to Jesus talk about that. And, yeah. you know, they're in a great place now. But it, the, the main person that had to do something there was her stepping into her sovereignty. Yes. That's very interesting. I think this is one of the reasons why it's so important to be able to examine the intentions of anything and everything that you do. Because we, any external action can have multiple reasons and multiple things behind it, mm-hmm. some of which are problematic and some of which are unhealthy. And you need to know the intention to know which one it is. That's right. Yeah. And what's interesting too is that intentions and delusions can mix with each other or multiple delusions can stack on each other or multiple intentions Mm -hmm. can stack on each other. So it's difficult to be totally intentional if you're also simultaneously engaged in delusion. Like we were talking about how uh, we had that conversation yesterday about how to deliver feedback Yep. and you, know, you want to be sincere, but like you were saying, you want to deliver that with kindness and respect at the same time. Exactly. And that's super important because to me, if you're being sincere, but you're being expedient about your sincerity, yep. then you're just going to make somebody <laughs> feel like a bag of shit <laughs> in the middle of it. And you don't want to do that. You want to let them know that you care. So there's a discipline in, in choosing your words 
Carefully. We, we had that other discussion about how it's like each of the intentions and delusions, like stats in a video game, and that mm-hmm. whatever you're one you're weakest on mm-hmm. can then corrupt the others. Yes. So like we were just talking about, like where you can be sincere but expedient about it. And so it's beneficial to work on the one where you're struggling the most so that it doesn't corrupt the others when they're expressed. That that's a very interesting point. I've I've been teaching a friend of mine recently who is aspiring to to do coaching. I've been teaching him how to do the process of releasing delusions that I use in the liberation session. And I've been the client of this. And what I find is really interesting is that because we're doing these on Zoom calls, we're not knocking out everything in one call, which is what I would normally do during a liberation session, but we're like fragmenting it. So what's interesting is that like I'll release like a delusion and I'll be I'll feel really good about it. But then the other ones that haven't been released yet are starting starting to overcompensate for the one that's missing there. So I find it fascinating that all of them, they work together. There's this relationship of interconnectedness. That's what makes coaching so challenging is that people think that it's just, oh, listen, give your thoughts. And that's not the case. You have to, if you're good, you have to understand the whole complex system of what's going on. Correct. And see the multiple dynamics when somebody gives you a story of what they're struggling with, Mm -hmm. right? There's almost always multiple things in play. So you have to say, hey, listen, these are the four things that's happening. And this is the most important one you focus on, but you also got to pay attention to these others. That's right? right. Like that's somebody who understands the whole complex system. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and unfortunately, I had this a big critique I have of the, the coaching industry is that there are a lot of people in this space who are not at that level of mastery. Yes. And they think that they are. They don't understand what coaching really is. Mm-hmm. And so they put themselves out there as being able to accomplish results that they can't accomplish because they haven't honed the craft to that level. Correct. And then clients will potentially buy into that marketing and they'll get burned and they're like, oh, I don't want to hire a coach when that could really help them. And so I, I feel like the, the industry does need greater rigor. Mm-hmm. What is uh, something that you wish to contribute to the coaching industry in your lifetime? The thing that I most love to contribute is to popularize my psychohacking methodology. Mm-hmm. You and I share that, that I with, with our methods. <laughs> yeah, it does relate because mm-hmm. if you think about it, right, like, the fire maps to the D, which maps to the expediency. Right? Correct. What is anger except for attempting to shortcut by forcing somebody? Correct. If you look at the the internal conflict, that's, uh, again, that falls into the performance category. If you look at the stresses, especially fear, you know, of not having, if situations changing and all this, you see that play into to the control. Like, why do people try to control stuff? Because they're afraid. Yes. And if you look at like the thought loops and the analysis paralysis, like that maps to the resistance. And even within each stress, as I said, external conflict and anger, internal conflict and guilt, the stresses in general, but specifically fear. And then the last one being the the thought loops and the grief. Why are people in grief? Because they can't accept what's happened. And so that esoteric work now overlays with the intentions and delusions and with the disc and with the alchemical elements and with the neurotransmitters. <laughs> this stuff is all connected. There are so many layers and you can, uh, which, which is really interesting because a lot of solutions, Jordan Peterson on this it are people trying to hit a complex system with a stick and saying it's fixed. <laughs> I haven't heard that phrase, but I do agree with that statement. Are these simple solutions. Oh, all you got to do is believe in yourself, man, or just be grateful. And to gratitude's credit, it, Grat- if yeah. there was something like a one thing that you could just throw at a lot of situations, gratitude would be yeah, a great start. Yeah, but the problem start. is that to do that, mm-hmm. it's okay, how do I be grateful? Mm-hmm. Like somebody who's in a highly conditioned unconscious state can't just pick up their gratitude mug and drink some gratitude. Like they have to get through that other stuff to get, because gratitude is a spiritual state. Yes. Right? And so if you're stuck in the emotional and cognitive states, you can't just reach down through the muck and pluck out a gem of gratitude so easily. Is it a great intention? Yeah. Do I have all my clients do a gratitude thing every morning? Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. They to build the muscle. But to really get good at it requires all the other stuff. Yes. Requires, again, real awareness right from Mm -hmm. the observing self from the soul observing what's going on and understanding this right because you don't do that all that other chattering monkey mind is going to block you from fully accessing that gratitude a hundred percent yeah it's it's really interesting one thing that i i'm curious about (laughs) i'm going to ask you to describe what it means to do the esoteric work Mm -hmm. 
But one testament that I'll give to that is before I even knew what the esoteric work was, I was doing it by <laughs> studying Zen and Stoicism while I was coaching for Robbins. And while I was doing that, what I noticed is that when the esoteric work made its way into my coaching, the results that clients were getting just went through the roof. Oh, and absolutely. the effectiveness of the coaching was substantial. And I didn't know what actually made that switch, but the esoteric work change something fundamentally about everything oh, that, that I was doing. So what, how would you describe the esoteric work for somebody who's unfamiliar with what that is? Well, so there are two fundamental precepts of it. So one is disidentification, mm -hmm. right? So this is where you realize you are not your thoughts. You yes. are not your emotions. You are not your mind. You are, and the way I like to describe it is if you have a robot, your body is the metal of the robot. Mm -hmm. Your mind with all its thoughts and emotions is the software of the robot. Yes. And you are the programmer Mm. Right? You, the soul, are the programmer that can program that software. Correct. And then get the robot to do whatever it needs to do. Mm -hmm. And so most people, they don't even realize that. They think they are their thoughts, right? Yes. They think they are their they identify with it. Right? Yeah. I, I'm feeling X. I'm thinking X, right? Like, it's like they're very identified with it. So the first step is disidentification. The second step is observation without condemnation or justification. This is where now that you've disidentified, you study the mind but you don't do it from a place of duality. You don't do it from a place of trying to make excuses for the stuff that's not working. And you don't do it from a place of beating yourself up for the stuff that's not working. Mm -hmm. You just observe it calmly and, and from a dissociated state. And there are other things like the stress dissolving techniques and all this other stuff. There are ways that can speed that, but fundamentally it's all based on observing, disidentifying and observing what's going on. Yes. As you say, <laughs> be aware of your intentions. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And that, that's a highly esoteric practice because it's one in which it, it, it's tough to put into words sometimes, but I think one of the things that makes es the esoteric work difficult is if a person is over identified with their ego and they, yeah, they're then like, then you can't even start. You can't even start because it's, this is compromise the validation of my ego. And if so, no, thank you. That's why I, one of the things I start people off on is just very basic stimulus response. Observe where you're reacting mechanically. Mm -hmm. We just observe somebody said X to you and you responded mechanically. Yes. Right? You didn't have any intention in that response. Yeah, you just autopiloted. Mm -hmm. and, and, and getting people to like actually study that and write that down mm -hmm. like dozens and dozens of times. And they're like, well, that's interesting. Like, I'm not in control of myself. And that kind of starts to shake people a little bit. The I don't next, really like that. <laughs> the next thing that I do is I have them observe the stress and I have them write down the date. Mm -hmm. I have write down what they were, what the stress was and I have them write down in other tables, any kind of erratic behavior mm -hmm. with the date, yes. and any kind of physical symptoms and the date. And I have them do assessment of the energy level three times a day. And so what you find, because what stress does is it marshals a tremendous amount of energy because you're telling your system, oh, I need to go run from a bear or whatever. So it marshals a tremendous amount of energy and that energy has to go somewhere. That's right. So there are two places it can go. Either it can be expressed externally, in mm -hmm. case it comes out as erratic behavior, mm -hmm. or it can be uh, bottled up internally, in which case it causes your cells to go do all kinds of weird things. And then you've got aches in your joints and your skin's popping up and you have gut issues and blah, 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 blah. Right? Mm. And either way, you're, you're going to be depleted in energy and then you're going to exhibit one of these two things, either erratic behavior or physical symptoms. And generally the erratic behavior comes within about 24 hours. The physical symptoms are more like 24 to 72 hours. Mm -hmm. The energy depletion is within normally within 24 hours. And I just have people write this down and they're like, oh, wow. Well, so that's causing me to do X and causing me to have this. And yeah, they like, start oh, to see the chain. They start to see the chain. And then they realize that, oh, this stress really is not something that's affordable for me. Yes. And then they become interested in how do you get rid of that? And then that kind of gets people into a place where you can get them to start observing things. But I'm very careful about building up what I have people observe from the easy to the hard. And from the I external think that's wise. To, yeah, and, and, <laughs> and from the external, like, provable situations to yes. the internal, like, harder to diagnose ones. Mm -hmm. Because that allows people to ease into it. So I'm very careful about the ordering of how I do it. I agree with that. I, I've recently gave this tasking to, to to some clients of mine and some of them have done well with it because they understand it almost like closer to the level that I've been able to understand it. But when I first started giving this tasking out, I didn't realize where my understanding was at relative to the people I'm coaching or to the people I tell this about. But I have this format of journaling that is a 
an observation process where I start by writing down my thoughts exactly as they are. The exact dialogue that's in my head, whether it sounds crazy or all over the place, whatever it is. Just I've had a lot down. of people who like don't want to write down what the mind is actually thinking when they have, because they, they have that column and specific thing. Yeah. And they're like, I didn't want to write that down because it sounded ridiculous. I'm like, I don't care. Of yeah. Course it's gonna I, be just, I just write point, it down. The point of it being ridiculous is why you need to see it. Yes, correct. You're not embracing that that's there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I write down the, the thoughts exactly as they are. And then I'm like, okay, these are the feeling. These are the emotions I'm feeling. And as I'm writing down these emotions, like I let myself feel them like whatever they are. And what's interesting is the moment you allow yourself to really feel them, they go away rather quickly. Like they just, they dissolve or at least they don't have that effect. And I, once you allow yourself to feel them, you have the ability to release them. You still have to choose to release yeah, them. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a choice. Some people hold on to their negative emotion or their unpleasant emotions and go into a victim mentality. They'll feel them and then they'll just replay it yeah, over and over. They'll, they'll, yeah, they'll, they'll is, keep it going, which, which is... is I painful as shit. But. Yeah, it, it really is. And I go through that process. I'll let myself feel the emotions, write them down. But then I go into a dialogue with myself that I've realized now is a lot of the questioning or discussion that I have in a coaching format. So I'll ask myself the questions. Okay, well, what could this mean? What else does it mean? What is it really trying to express? And this is like how I've learned to talk to myself, which is how I coach. And then I'll have other people like, this is how you do this exercise. They'll go do it. And they're like, it didn't work. This is like, I started like writing down all these negative things. I'm like, okay, now I got to understand that it's important to go in steps. Like what you're saying, start with the easy to the hard to remember, to observe these things. So that's actually a really interesting point. I think sometimes we don't realize like how far we've come in doing certain reflection, reflective exercises until we try to give it to somebody else who hasn't been through all I, that work. I, when I was early on in coaching, yeah, I had that problem. Yeah. But then I figured out relatively quickly that the, because my, my compliance numbers were multiples of the industry average, but they weren't where I wanted them to be. And I had always designed the system from, from easy to hard, but there were other aspects of it where specifically around the level of detail that I might was requesting on some of them and stuff. I, I had to learn to strike a balance between going fully and also not creating overwhelm. And then the other thing, honestly, that I've realized is that there's some people who like, if they're in a chaotic mindset, mm -hmm. they're just not ready for the esoteric work. And so I've started funneling those people to a low ticket info course because mm -hmm. they need pre-preparation before they can even be ready for it. So like there are people who I took on as clients in the beginning that I would not take on as clients today. I've, yeah, I've had the same experience, right? Like realizing that like, okay, this is not, the esoteric stuff is not where they're at right now. They're here and I need to have a solution for them for where they're at. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's part of what you were saying earlier in terms of honing the craft of coaching is understanding yeah. how to coach in the different, uh, modalities of what somebody needs in that moment. Yeah, exactly. Because that's the thing is like, as much as I love the esoteric toolbox, it doesn't solve everything. Not no. because it can't theoretically, but because people can't use that tool. Right. You know, it's like, will a, you know, ballistic missile launcher uh, solve, you know, a dealing with some person running at you? Yeah, it will. It will, it will yeah. blow them away. But if you can't lift the ballistic missile launcher, then they're going to get there and kill you before you can do that. Right. And to quote Dr. Dan, it's like putting a nitrous tank in a Pinto. <laughs> like, it's not going to quite run the way you expect it to go. Will it go fast? It'll go sure. fast. <laughs> it might be, you may cause some, uh, some damage. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's not, not the best thing. So yeah, I mean, I think it's fascinating to, to learn this and I'm very grateful for, the esoteric practices because it's allowed me to to be able to discuss this stuff freely of like oh yeah this is fucked up in this time and it's like it's okay it's like yeah this is part of the experimentation this is the trial and error and this is how we learn these things is being able to reflect without uh without condemnation from that objective perspective so i think that that's that's really powerful one thing i did want to make sure that we touched on uh because i know we we kind of left it there but the Active and passive of we embrace and resistance. Yeah. So I think for resistance, the active form of it is like where you like writhe and, you know, like refuse to accept and lash out and all this other kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Whereas the passive form of it is simply not accepting and just being like, oh, you know, like, you know, that, that shouldn't have happened. You know? mm -hmm. Right. Like, yeah. Just the unacceptance. Yeah. Just the unacceptance. And or then, the non-trusting of what is type of yeah. thing. And then, 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 you know, obviously the active form of embrace is to consciously and entirely accept the situation. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but the passive form of it would be more like, you know what, I'm not going to let myself get worked up about this. Yes. Right. Which is a little bit different in nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not, not allowing yourself to go into that place where you're going to get worked up or not getting choose just choosing not to. Yeah, even, have, if, even if you haven't said, Hey, listen, I accept this and I'm grateful for it. Mm-hmm. Right. You can still be like, you know what? I'm just not going to go down that path. I'm That's right. To worry about. Yeah. I've noticed another active form of resistance is the, uh, the whole idea of wishing it were different or wishing it were easier type of thing. And I, I heard, yeah, so if you like, if you're replaying those thought loops over yeah. and over and over again. Oh yeah. I used to daydream a bunch when I was younger about wishing like my life circumstances were different specifically on things like I couldn't control. Yep. And it was like, <laughs> I would just go all day like that. And I'd never realized it was a form of resisting like myself blows your mental bandwidth and your emotional bandwidth out of the water though when you do that no oh, absolutely <laughs> it, it most certainly does I, I, mean, it's, I it's like running a computer program in the background that eats up 50 percent of your ram all the time and does nothing yeah just just is going in circles not accomplishing anything useful or practical yeah. at all um i there was one thing around resistance that or the whole like idea of wishing it were different or wishing it were easier kind of thing that has always resonated with me uh, it's something I heard from Tom Bilyeu from Impact Theory that he said he's basically, I'll paraphrase it, he said, when you pray for things to be easier, you're praying for your own weakness mm-hmm. in these in these situations. Because it's it's very similar to you being like like holding a 50-pound f- a dumbbell and go, I wish this was 30 pounds. Like, well, no, it's 50 pounds. Wishing it was 30 is not going to make you any stronger. So you're basically trying to subsidize your own inability to pick up this weight. And that, that, that metaphor can be applied to any situation in life where we want things to be easier. Instead, the idea of, I guess, <clears throat> passive or passive embrace is to at least not wish for things to be easier, at least not wish for them to be different. Yeah. It's just say, Hey, listen, I'm not going to devote, you know, cognition or energy to this. That's know? right. Right. I'm, you know, it, it happened and, you know, maybe I wish it had been different, but I'm just not going to engage in, in that, that loop. Yeah. Right? Not going to give it any charge. Yeah, exactly. So to speak. Exactly. I'm going to unplug that one. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So um, just, you know, before we wrap up, I know I usually ask this question about like, what's the thing that you would leave? But I've asked you that question many times. You have. <laughs> and you've always answered the same way, which I if, respect. If you ask that, I'm going to answer the same way that I did before. <laughs> Yes, I mean, feel free to throw in if, if there's been some updates. But I do have another um, thing that I do want to ask you. Okay, great. New question. So this is one I'm, I've thought about this for myself, and I'm curious from your perspective. I've noticed, especially when, uh, when, I, when I think back to Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, Rule 6 is to clean up your own room before you try to go saving the world. Mm-hmm. And whenever, whenever I think about that, I think it's incredibly profound because the idea is that you start local when it comes to solving the wrongs of the world, so to speak, which is, which is really fascinating ideas. Like you start with yourself and that, that allows itself to expand out. If for anybody who's listening, who maybe feels lost or stressed or doesn't have a sense of direction, what would you say is a good first step to start local with awakening themselves and aiming towards their potential. So uh, a coach who you and I both know, mm-hmm. Jane, once told me these words of wisdom. Yes. She said, people want to save the world. Yes. They want to lead a movement. Mm-hmm. She said, but to lead a movement, you have to start by leading yourself. Yes. And then from there, you go and you lead one individual here and one individual there. And then from there, you go to a point where you're leading a room. Mm-hmm. And then you can go lead a movement. But if you can't lead a room, you can't lead a movement. If you can't lead one person, you can't lead a room. And if you can't lead yourself, you can't lead anyone else. That's right. So the first step is to go and develop your own sense of sovereignty, your own sense of free will, your own sense of agency, your own sense of control over your own thoughts and emotions. Mm -hmm. Because most people are completely unconscious to how much they are operating on autopilot like a machine. Yes. And so, and this, again, this, you know, given where people are, there may be different tools for this, right? If you're really at the, the bottom of the totem pole, uh, you may, you know, maybe something like psychotherapeutic tools. Like if you don't have, you know, reasonable human beings that you can bounce ideas off of, 
who are functional, maybe it makes sense to go do therapy, mm-hmm. right? Maybe it makes sense to go do, you know, like something as simple as like gratitude and empowerment practices so that you don't, you know, feel like crap about yourself, mm-hmm. right? And as you move up, you know, then you start getting into some of the more traditional coaching like NLP stuff, right? Which, you know, you can go and you can get a book, right? Like there's, you know, um, Introduction to NLP by Seymour uh, and O'Connor is a great one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you can understand, you know, what are the metaprograms that are going on in you? Yes. Right. You can go take the DIS test and, and get some awareness about that. And then, you know, past that, now you start going to the esoteric work. Now it's where you start taking the perspective of the soul and observing. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's kind of like, you know, the different kinds of techniques and, and the ladder and the order in which you want to do them. Mm-hmm. And so depend, you know, it starts with being honest to yourself. Like, where are you, right? Are you the kind of person who can't get through the day without being triggered? Mm-hmm. You probably want to start with therapy. Yeah. Right? Are you the kind of person who, you know, can get through the day, but maybe like isn't particularly consistent when it comes to projects that last more than a couple of weeks? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well then it's probably time for you to work on some of the gratitude, empowerment, positive psychology stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? Are you the kind of person who's got a couple areas that are weirdly blocked? You know, where you've got other stuff online. NLP and DISC and traditional coaching is probably going to be a good fit for you. Mm-hmm. But if you want to go past that, you know, that's where you have to go esoteric. Yeah. And that, that you start with observation disidentification and that's, you know, the whole deconditioning thing and past deconditioning, that rabbit hole goes further and further and further, right? Mm-hmm. It goes into mysticism. Many layers. <laughs> practical metaphysics. It goes into the deeper stages of enlightenment and like, you know, but, but people who are shooting for that end stuff before doing the basics, mm-hmm. you know, especially the basics of deconditioning, but also the other stuff, you know, wherever, like you can't just skip from, Hey, listen, like I'm in pain and I can't function and get through a day to I'm spiritually enlightened. People try to shortcut that with like ayahuasca or whatever. And it generally doesn't end well. No. <laughs> Illusion of expediency. That's right. Unearned <laughs> wisdom is a very dangerous wisdom. thing. <laughs> a very dangerous thing. Well, Sean, thank you so much again for being on. Uh, I, where can people find you or get more information on the personal finance course or the other things that you have to offer? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you can go to www.oculusinstitute.com. Um, I've got a lot of stuff there. If you go to products and services, you can kind of browse the various offerings. Um, you can email me at sean at oculusinstitute.com, whether you're interested in um, the Finding Your Ikigai course or the personal finance course, mm-hmm. either one of them. Um, if you are a coach and you are interested in that coaching software, um, just just shoot me an email and I'll put you on a list to, to get in touch. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, that's 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 the best way to reach me. Amazing. Just email Sean at OculusInstitute.com. That's S-E-A-N at O-C-U-L-U-S-I-N-S-T-I-T-U-T-E.com. Awesome. Sean, thank you so much for being on and for having this wonderful conversation with me regarding the intentions and delusions. I appreciate your contribution to the philosophy of Zen Stoicism. Thank you for having me, man. It's always a pleasure.